Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening and welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, leftover salmon bassist Greg Garrison. Building a career in music can be an inexact process. The influence of luck cannot be overstated. But luck, as they say, favors the prepared, and being prepared means hard work. Leftover salmon bassist Greg Garrison's luck in the music business certainly can be attributed to diligent hard work, but also to the fact that he is supremely talented. After graduating from college, Garrison left his home state of Illinois and settled in the beautiful and musically rich territory of Colorado, where he worked his way through a series of bands while getting a master's and eventually a Ph.D. in bass. Paying his dues led him to a regular gig with pseudo-bluegrass jam band legends Leftover Salmon. Hundreds of shows and several albums ensued. As if that accomplishment wasn't enough, Garrison was also a founding member of mandolin virtuoso Chris Steely's post-Nickel Creek ensemble, Punch Brothers. Garrison is equally at home playing upright or electric bass, and he easily and deftly bridges the gap between jazz and improvised roots music. I had a chance to catch up with him in the back lounge of Leftover Salmon's tour bus while the band was in town to play a gig at Los Angeles' House of Blues. So, welcome to Independence Day, Thanks. Greg Garrison. Yeah, man. Very nice to see you. It's you been too. A, it's been a while. We have, <laughs> it's been a long time. We have yeah. history together. It's always yep. nice to have someone on the show who I've played with at uh-huh. one time or another and who have, who have gone on to do other cool things mm-hmm. in the music business. And you've, and you've done a lot. I have, yeah. I've been lucky, for and sure. So tell me, you know, how long have you been full-time music? I mean, I know you teach as well, but I you do, play yeah. in numbers of bands. But like, yep. how, how long has it been? Uh, the last real job I had was as a bank teller, actually. In, t- in when did I quit that? I guess 1999. So, okay. Yeah, it's been 14 years now that I've been playing professionally, at least not supporting myself with any other yeah. type of income. Um, I mean, I've uh, you know, like any musician, I've been playing playing for much longer than that, but. That's how long I've been supporting myself. Yeah, well, there's always that gag in the Grammys about the best new artist. Uh Because even the band that won this year, that band Fun, I think they're on their second or third album. Are they really? And they're like best new artists. Uh But it's kind of a dubious category anyway. It's the best new artist that somebody discovered this year. Yeah, yeah, that Uh people figured out that was Mm. good by this time. So, (laughs) um, but tell me just... Give me a little bit of your path. I know your history, mm-hmm. but I mean, you're you're a great resource for our listeners to, mm-hmm. to check out because, you know, so many people that I've known over the years and have played with, you know, they still play, mm-hmm. but they're not doing it to the extent that you are like you, right. you've got all these different things that you do between mm-hmm. teaching and mm-hmm. your own album and playing with leftover salmon mm-hmm. and like all the gigs you've done with bill frizzell mm-hmm. give me like how, how did this progress like take us back to college like you get out of right. college what do you do um i got out of college and i quite honestly didn't know what i was going to do you know I, I think that um i knew i wanted to play but i didn't know if i was going to be able to support myself and uh so I knew I wanted to, um, but I, you know, I wasn't quite done with learning about music, I guess, at that point. And I had been to Colorado a few times just to kind of hang out and, and visit. And I knew, I knew I wanted to keep playing, and I knew I wanted to move to Colorado. Okay. So I just, as quickly as I could, kind of found a way to make that happen. Yeah. And so I applied for um, 
an assistantship at University of Northern Colorado and got accepted, you know, and was a TA there. And uh, so for me, that was a good solution to continue, you know, studying the bass yeah. and, uh, and also move to Colorado, even though it was Greeley, which wasn't, you know, the ideal yeah. landing spot, but it was, you man, it was great. Yeah. yeah, you don't think of, when people think of Colorado, they never think of that eastern third of the state that's, no. that's like wheat fields. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, uh, and Greeley's strategic, got a... Strategic Gre- Air Command bunkers. That's what I was going to say. Well, Air Command in Greeley means a completely different thing. I mean, the town just smells really, really bad. Yeah. Because there's a, a blood rendering factory. Oh, for for like one of the meat you know meat packing companies up there and so the town you it just smells like burnt broccoli you know what i mean I don't, oh that's funny because you know dig for you know greg and i go back to millican university in decatur and that was soybeans which there, has its right? own unique yep. uh, unique stench to yep. the air and you know out of the frying pan into the fire man right exactly there's always that i mean you guys were uh, greg's on tour uh with leftover salmon yep. right now uh kind of what would you call them style wise i mean the the the, the semi-derogatory term is like hippie bluegrass yeah exactly band. and and then we have a and on you know a the, the the guys who have been in the band since the beginning um, call it polyethnic Cajun slam grass. I don't know what that means, but I mean it's kind of yeah. a, it's a rock band that plays bluegrass. You know, I think yeah. most of us the the intersection between everybody in the band is bluegrass, and uh, so that's uh, that's kind of where people lump us or associate us yeah. with yeah with the hippie bluegrass thing, but. I think you know we're we're just kind of a, a rock band yeah. more than anything. Well, we so. live in a hybridized world. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's it seems like even rock bands now there's really no like Mumford and Sons is a very popular band right, right now. But to yeah. me, they're just a rock band that plays acoustic instruments. Yeah, sure. Same with the Lumineers and yeah. Lumineers. Mm-hmm. Somebody uh, there's like isn't there some kind of a term like Civil War something? Somebody came up with a term for those kind of bands. Really? Yeah, and and it's kind of a silly term. I don't remember what it was, but I call them they're just like stomp, stomp and shout yeah. bands. Yeah, you know? there's all there's the the the, the, the the common element seems to be the stand-up drum set with the four on the floor yeah, drum right. on everything. Yep. You know, it's like driving. Yep. So it's almost like dance music in that regard. Yeah, that's it's true. it's got this yeah. four on the floor thing. Yep. Um, but I, to, to, to circle back around, like you guys are coming down the coast, uh-huh. you know, and if you, I mean, like most bands, you sleep on the bus mm-hmm. between shows if you're doing a lot of runs, a lot right. of dates in a row. Yep. So you missed all of our rendering facilities, which are in the Central Valley. Oh, they are. California. Okay. So, so we went right past them this morning. We went I right guess. past yeah. them. Uh-huh. Yeah. The cow, uh, the cow graveyard or the cow slaughter, <laughs> the giant cow slaughterhouse that is the San Joaquin Valley. Wow. Some of the worst air quality in the nation, by the way. No kidding. In the San Joaquin Valley. Which is crazy because the rest of the state, you know, I mean, you come to California and get out by the coast we were just in arcada yeah. and it just you know smells so amazing and yeah. feels so clean and all oh, the and, upper you know. the, the north coast is just so on like everything yep. north well even well big sur south of san francisco mm-hmm. but you get north of even santa barbara mm-hmm. from there all the way to oregon is just on it's a car commercial country for yep. one thing yeah right it's absolutely gorgeous yep um so i mean i remember you know way back in college there were you adam kilgus some other mm-hmm. guys like why, you know, we grew up in s- suburban Chicago. Right. What was it about Colorado? Was it a musical thing? Was it a ge- like just a straight up geographic thing? Was for it- for me, it was geographical. You know what I mean? Um, just seeing the mountains, I think. And Adam, you 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 mentioned him, which is funny because he and I, you know, we did a few trips out here together. Yeah. Went to Utah and you know camped in Colorado and stuff. And and uh, for me, it was just yeah, it was geography more than anything. Just the beauty. I don't know what it was about it that kind of drew me out here. And. Uh, I just, you know, I didn't even know about leftover salmon when I moved out here or anything. I, I had no idea. I didn't know what the scene was really about in Colorado. Um, it was literally, you know, it just felt like the place I wanted to be for yeah. some reason, you know, in, in my soul or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. Who, who knows. But um, and just the opportunity that I had to continue my studies and not have to pay for school was a huge part Abs- of it. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's just mm-hmm. it. You know, growing up where we grew up, I mean... 
I don't want to say it's boring because mm-hmm. that's because I mean I have incredibly fond memories of growing up where I did uh-huh. and and never did care. Where'd for you the, grow up? Was it Aurora or Batavia? Was it? Batavia, Aurora, yeah, right. Western, so Fermi Lab was yeah. the big thing. Uh-huh. The National Accelerator Laboratory. Did they shut that now? Since they have the big one in uh, Switzerland, the yeah. Large Hadron Collider. You uh-huh. know they they've. They still use it, I think, but they didn't get the the, the mm-hmm. super collider went to Switzerland. Mm-hmm. First, it was going to go to Texas. That was a big mm-hmm. thing when I was in high they school. They use it for now for probably like inventing uh, new flavors of ice cream or something. Yeah, like that well, they, yeah, exactly. Uh. Well, they did discover what's the uh, not not the top quark the uh, oh the Higgs ha- Higgs boson. Oh yeah, was that at Fermilab? That was no, though. That was that was uh, at the one in Switzerland, Hatton. right? That's, yeah, that's the one yeah. overseas. But uh, so I went to school with a lot of physicist kids who really broke the grade curve, or mm-hmm. screwed up the grade curve for <laughs> musicians like me. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I mean, I'm in California now. I mean, mm-hmm. for some of the same reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I loved where I grew up, but I think I took it as far as I could take it, mm-hmm. and had to go somewhere else, right? Just to experience somewhere else. So, right. when, so when you, when so you get to Colorado, mm-hmm. you're playing in bands. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you're, you're mm-hmm. studying. Like, what was your what was your break? Like, what got you out there to the point that led? I guess what I'm saying is, you know, leftover salmon's a pretty good gig. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've been around for a long time, but they'd been around for a while by the time you got there. Yeah, they they started in, uh, I joined in the year 2000, and I think they started in 88 or something like that. 88, yeah, exactly. And uh, so the way that that happened for me is is I got called to do a band or a tour with a band called the Motet that still exists. They, they kind of had a, you know, they, they, uh, they still tour nationally a little bit. They tend to do like one-offs in, you know, wherever their fan base is, New York, San Francisco. They're pretty popular in Colorado, but, um, it was with this drummer named Dave Watts who used to play in a band called Chakra, um, where I think they were from Boston or something, but they were one of the really, really early kind of touring jam bands. And so through my association with Dave and the Motet and also with another, um, I guess it was like a weekly jam that they had up in Netherland, Colorado called. Uh, yeah, exactly. I've been to Netherland. Yep, there's always Netherland involved in this kind of thing. It but snowed. I was there. That last time I saw you out there, it uh-huh. snowed. Like, I went up there for my birthday. It was in the middle of June. It snowed the day before my birthday, and uh-huh. the next day it was like 80 degrees. Yeah, exactly. Colorado. Yep, yeah, Colorado. Man. But so there was something in uh, in Netherland on every Monday night called Netherland Acid Jazz. And I don't remember who recommended me for that, but it was just this guy, um, Michigan Mike is what he was called. He was a promoter. That, who, that uh, sounds like a good Netherland name. Yeah, it's a great Netherland name. And unfortunately, he met a pretty... Uh, he, he met a pretty uh, um, untimely end. He killed himself a few years back, which was oh, which was really sad. But um, anyway, he you know he would call me for these Netherland acid jazz things, and and uh, between that and the stuff with the motet, um, I just eventually kind of found my way into the you know the scene of musicians who was associated with some of the guys in Salmon. Um, I heard from Dave Watts, the drummer, that Ty North, who was the old bass player, was leaving, and uh, I just thought it would be a great opportunity, you know, because I at that point I. I I hadn't played a lot of bluegrass, but I loved it. You know, I, I listened yeah. to it a ton in college, and and um, and you know, so I did a little ba- background research on salmon and listened to some of their music and thought it was really great. And uh, so I immediately went out and started learning all of their tunes. You know, and this was in the time before the. Um, well, I guess just like early internet, you know, and, and so there wasn't like archive.org where you could go and download shows. I had to find some tapers, which oh, right, fortunately right, I kind of knew that world because I liked the Grateful Dead and, you know, I right. dealt with some of those people in the past and um, found a guy who had like a, just a ton of CDs of leftover salmon for some reason. I still keep in touch with him, a guy in Philadelphia named Bert, who uh, <laughs> who he just sent me like, you know, he just sent me a box of CDs. So I went through for about a month and cataloged all the tunes and looked at set lists online and realized that the band has at that point like 400 tunes maybe that they were rotating pretty consistently and uh 
um, just started learning as many as I possibly could. Yeah, yeah. You know, unfortunately with bluegrass, there's a lot of similarities between tunes. You know, I could say, oh, this one sounds like that. This is like that tune. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I kind of got got an audition. They flew me out to Cincinnati for a couple nights. And, um, and then beyond that, like it always takes with bands, it took probably another six months for everything to... yeah finally settle and, and the gig to start you know what was the story with our uh the guy you replaced with ty he just uh um let me close this door here he had been doing it for seven years i think and and he and jeff sipe who was the drummer before i joined some people call call him apartment q258 he used to play with uh, colonel bruce hampton and mm-hmm. the aquarium rescue unit okay. um they just both decided that they didn't want to do it anymore so I think, you know, yeah. family reasons or whatever, who knows, but... Yeah, let's um, let's hear a little bit of Leftover Salmon. Sure. Uh, I want to give people an idea of what this is all about. I mean, they're a fairly famous band. They've been on national TV. They do national tours constantly. It's a full-time gig for yeah. for these guys who are in this. Uh, so this is the track uh, Gone for Long from the Aquatic Hitchhiker album. This is Greg Garrison and Leftover Salmon on Independence Day. with the sting 
But I know you're gone for long Too many words left in that song And I know you're gone for long listening to Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. I come to you every week bringing you exemplary musicians from Los Angeles and far, far beyond. Tonight, I am very, very happy to sitting be sitting with my old friend Greg Garrison. We are in the back of their tour bus yep. outside the House of Blues in West Hollywood. They're playing a show here and a tour. How far are you guys going on this tour? Uh, we are as far as mileage or... <laughs> or just, I mean, is this a, a like a west half of the country tour? It's basically west half. Yeah, we started, started in uh, Missoula, Montana and kind of looped all the way up to Seattle. Going to come all the way south through California hit uh arizona back up through colorado we're kind of making a big oval almost and then yeah. we wind up in jackson wyoming giant so we don't, comma yeah so we don't we don't quite complete the whole uh, oval back up to montana but yeah yeah mm-hmm. and you guys are doing different touring now like mm-hmm. there was a period where you were like road dogs right yeah and when you first joined up so when i first joined up yeah the first four years so from 2000 to 2004 um it was you know 150 to 170 shows a year Prior to that, they were doing, uh, I think they topped out at like 220 or 250 That's a one lot year. of shows, man. Yeah, I never I never had to live through that. Um, you know, that would have been difficult, but probably pretty fun. Which is fun when you're like 22. Right. You know, right. but when you're, you know, it's funny, people don't think about these kinds of things. Like right. you get a little older, everybody gets older, musicians are the same way. It's mm-hmm. like you don't, you know, I don't want to say you don't have fire to do it, but right. you have jobs and families and other, yeah. you have families and kids yep. and other responsibilities and you start making different choices. Yeah, absolutely. And man, you know what? The older you get, the more tired you get too. It's nice to, nice to sleep every now and again and have some rest and, um, yeah. you know, but anyway, so we were doing 150 plus, you know, um, now we took a hiatus in 2004 uh, for a variety of reasons. The the main catalyst being Mark Van, who was the band's yeah, original banjo you player. You lost a founder. Yeah, we did. Yeah, he died from from uh, um, essentially melanoma that Very they had sad. found. By the time they found it, it was uh, metastasized already, and I think he was stage three. So he found out in September of 2001, and he was dead in March of 2002. Wow happened really really quickly but so we used some other banjo players one of whom was Noam Pakelny who um who knowing him and playing with him is what led to me eventually joining the Punch Brothers with with Chris Thiele um Noam just was nominated for a Grammy in the um, Best Bluegrass Album Award and he won the first Steve Martin um kind of international banjo Grant I guess they call it or whatever a couple years back great banjo player but he worked with us for a couple of years and then he quit to move to Nashville and work with John Cowan and um, so after that, we just decided it was time to take a break. You know, it's too difficult to, to lose somebody like Mark Van and then to try to pick things back up and think that you're headed in the right direction. And for that to, to not work out was just, uh, you know, just seemed like a good time to 
put things to rest, I guess. Yeah. So what did you do then at that point? I mean, I know that you do some teaching. Were you teaching by that point? I wasn't teaching at that point. No, I, I uh, you know, because it happened so suddenly and, you know, like most young musicians, uh, it seemed like the kind of thing that was going to last forever. You just don't even... You know, you get a gig and you don't expect it to end. You don't even think about that. Right. Um, so I, I just kept playing. You know, I had to dig up all my old contacts, local people that I hadn't worked with in a long time, and went back to doing some wedding gigs. And, um, you know, at this point I had my first child, Hayden. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, you've got to keep paying the bills. So I went on the road a little bit with Drew Emmett, the mandolin player with Salmon. Did a, um, some touring with him. Um, try to just pick up whatever gigs I could. I actually got offered a job to teach out in Minneapolis. Um, that just didn't work out. My my ex-wife now, she didn't want to move to Minnesota. And uh, so, yeah, I just kept touring, you know, and, until um, until the thing with Chris Thiele came along. So Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you were recommended, right, mm-hmm. from someone from Leftover Salmon? Is that how you got the gig with Chris with, Thiele? With, with Thiele, you know, I got it... Um, Noam Pekelny, the banjo player who's still playing with Punch Brothers now, and I, um, we we knew each other from Leftover Salmon, and we after Salmon ended, we just kept playing together occasionally, and I was actually in Nashville with him to rehearse for another project, one that he had put together, and uh, Chris just had this ambitious project that eventually became The Blind Leaving the Blind, which was the kind of the the long form classical piece that Chris put the band together to record, you know, and uh, so he was he was looking for like-minded young players like him which we didn't know you know he just called up Noam had met him somewhere and we went to his house for a jam session and uh, you know I was just like oh this is fucking great I get to play with Chris Thiele and and you know he's somebody that I've always wanted to to check out and we played for a little bit it was me and him and uh, Noam and Chris Eldridge um, who plays guitar with him still and I think it was a, it wasn't at Chris's house in Nashville it was at his manager's house I guess and just in the basement and you know we just played some tunes and Liberty, which is an old fiddle tune, and we played Cripple Creek, and you know, and and uh, and so anyway, Chris started telling us about this project. He said, "I'm writing this, you know, essentially a string quintet, and uh, that was going to fuse chamber music and pop music and bluegrass and all this stuff, kind of combine all the elements of his world into, um, you know, one distilled project, I guess." And and um, we were. I think we were all thinking, oh, man, it's going to be great. I can't wait to hear the record. It's going to be Bela and Edgar Meyer and, you know, who Brian Sutton on guitar and, you know, all of our heroes were like, this is going to be great. It's going to be strength in numbers all over again. And then um, I guess it was probably two weeks later he started calling all of us individually and asking us if we if we wanted to do it. So Yeah, and with, to back up just a little bit, we're talking, yep. of course, about Chris Thiele, right. the uh, virtuoso mm-hmm. mandolin player started off in Nickel Creek, San Diego band for a long time, yep. along with Watkins, Sarah, and mm-hmm. Sean. Yeah, exactly. Um, who, you know, really went pretty far with They did, Nickel yeah. Creek. They won a Grammy and, and did a lot for, for acoustic music, a I think, in general. for acoustic yeah. music. Kind of, kind of definitely carved out their own sonic turf yep. in terms of the style like right. within the, the bluegrass realm. Because they're not traditional. No. You know, they, they're very, they mix... I hesitate to say pop mm-hmm. because when you think of pop nowadays, you're thinking of Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, yeah, sure. uh, et cetera, sure. Taylor Swift. But they, you know, had songwritery aspects, mm-hmm. like smarter songs. It sounds terrible. Smarter songwriting than bluegrass. <laughs> it sounds like an insult. But, you know, bluegrass is a very traditional form. Right. And they were really bending it. Right. Um, so then when, when they, Nickel Creek decided to set their project aside, mm-hmm. the Punch Brothers was what we're talking about now. Right. 
Just yep. making sure people are up to speed on what they're yeah, talking exactly. about. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I kind of jumped from the, the salmon thing. To, yeah, no, no, that's totally cool. Because the way we tour now is, is uh, you know, I mean, the Punch Brothers stuff all happened in between um, when we stopped touring with Salmon and before we kind of put it back together, um, you know, in its current form, I guess. Um, yeah, and so I, and Chris didn't really decide that he wanted to end Nickel Creek until we got together as, uh, as you know, the first iteration of, of what became Punch Brothers. And uh, we we're rehearsing, you know, this crazy music that we were going to record, and, and he just felt so strongly that that was the group of musicians that he wanted to invest all of his time, you know, and energy into. So. And you said he was based in Nashville at this no, point? No, Chris was living in Manhattan. Oh, Manhattan, okay. Yeah, Chris was living in Manhattan, had been for a little while. Um, Noam and um, Chris Eldridge were in Nashville. I was in Denver, and then Gabe okay. Witcher was out here in L.A. That's always another interesting thing about bands that mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know is that a lot of bands, once you get to a certain level, do mm-hmm. not live in the same town. Right. You know, everybody thinks of, you know, our band back uh-huh. in college, you know, we all were at the same college. Yeah, and a right. lot of bands start that way. Mm-hmm. They come from a particular scene in one particular place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then Leftover Salmon, largely based. In Colorado. Largely based yeah. in Colorado. And we've Central. all spread out since then. But yeah. And it's spread out since then. But mm-hmm. a lot of bands are from all over the place. Yeah, they, it's true. And then, so so you're rehearsing where again? Um at first in New York. Okay. Yeah, we would uh, um, generally rehearse at Chris's place. He had a tiny little one-bedroom, you know, apartment on uh, in the East Village. It was like first and tenth, I guess. Um, right next, right next to the Russian bathhouse, and uh, very convenient. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we used it all the time. Not really, but <laughs> yeah. So you know, there were five dudes there. You know, five the five guys in the band plus the engineer that he had hired to to do it all, sleeping on his floor, on uh, um, you know air mattresses, and we. Deflate those in the morning, get up and play. Glamorous and life of a musician, man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, it was fueled by coffee and, and adrenaline and, and great food and, and uh, you know, good good man- adult beverages. And Manhattan's a creative place, man. I think so, too. When, when yeah, I yeah. moved there, I, I wasn't sure what I'd been there before, but I wasn't sure what I was in for. Mm-hmm. And coming from Chicago, which you feel is a very urban city, and it is. Right. But it's when you go to Manhattan, there's an energy in Manhattan. Right. I don't know if you felt this. The whole I did place for sure. oscillates. Yeah. It does, absolutely. And what I discovered, and I'm curious to know what you think about mm-hmm. this, is that if you fight that oscillation, mm-hmm. it will kind of destroy you. Mm. But if you invest in it mm-hmm. and like, give a little bit of yourself to it, it mm-hmm. will pick you up and carry you along. Hmm. Yeah. Which is this weird, it's, it's this weird otherworldly kind of energy that yeah, right. nowhere else I've ever been right. has. Yeah, Chris kind of crystallized that as, as uh, he just felt like in Manhattan there were so many people doing so many amazing things that if you weren't doing that you just weren't you shouldn't be there in anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just yeah and I guess it is just grabbing hold of that energy that's around yeah. and, and using it. Um I guess Manhattan didn't make a whole lot of sense to me until I was involved in that project and essentially kind of living there for two, three weeks at a time and recording and, and just uh, really feeling the city for what it is supposed to be as a creative musician. You know, every time prior to that, I was just either, you know, visiting with family or stopping in there on one tour. night on a tour and you just don't quite get it. You know what I mean? You might have time to get on the subway and go catch a show or something yeah. like that. But yeah, if you're visiting, you know, if you're not there seeing a show mm-hmm. in Times Square, it just feels like an asphalt nightmare. Yeah. In a you lot know. of ways, right. But then yeah. once you get invested a little bit, you know, and, and, and jump on the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the energy train, I guess, as a yeah. musician, 
um, or, or in any creative endeavor and, and get swept away by that. It makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah, yeah. You see why so much, once once you make music there, because right. I certainly did, you discover why so much great music is made Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah, totally yeah. makes sense. But let's hear yeah. a little bit of that. This is the first movement. Mm-hmm. This is the Punch Brothers from their very first record. Greg Garrison played bass on this. Chris Steely's band, uh, he's no longer playing with them uh, for a lot mm-hmm. for various reasons, mm-hmm. uh, professional reasons, personal reasons. Yep. Um, but you guys are on good terms, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Christmas card level? Not, well, not necessarily <laughs> Christmas card level. I mean, some of the guys, you know, I've, I've seen yeah. I've seen everybody and we've, we've chatted and hung out and Gnome, um, we still keep in touch yeah. semi-regularly and, and uh, you know, have invited each other to play on, on different projects and, you know, yeah, when we see each other, there's yeah. always a big hug and, once, and uh, well, that's just uh, it. how's once it you, going? So. Once you get to this level, mm-hmm. you know, you never know what the future holds. Yeah, exactly. You know, with a guy yeah. like Thiele, who knows what he's going to do next. You, right. might, you might get that call someday, but you're busy with leftover salmon anyway. Yep. So, but this is the first movement from Punch, which is the first record from the Punch Brothers. Uh, very happy to be talking with Greg Garrison in the back of Leftover Salmon's tour bus here on Independence Day. I've packed down the sidewalk, you 
My name is Joe Armstrong. As always, you are listening to Independence Day. Once again, very, very happy tonight to be talking to my old friend Greg Garrison. He is an exemplary bass player, good human being, songwriter, arranger, a uh, bit of a singer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On occasion. Yeah, I sing backgrounds. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bass player, so so shy and supportive by nature, not not necessarily... <laughs> of uh, course, man. Bass players... Yeah. I tell you what, man, I've, I've believed this to be true um, uh, above all things in music. Bass is the glue that holds every band together. Mm. Like you don't, I mean, unless you're Jocko, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, or the Sting, perhaps. Right. You know, it's it's somewhat thankless in mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. but without it, the whole thing crumbles. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. What I was actually having having a conversation with somebody last night. I it was somebody I, I didn't know, but it was somebody I met through a mutual friend, and his perspective was, the drums are the engine, and the bass is the wheels for the music. Okay. You know, so you can start the car with the drums, you can start the car with the engine, and you know, he he saw maybe the um well, what did he say? The singer's the asshole driver, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he said. He said you can do all these other things with the car, but you're not going to move if you don't have the wheels. So I thought that was a good, uh, yeah, a good, yeah. Way to, good way to look at it. There's a lot of analogies, but I mean, I, I, you know, I've tinkered with the bass over mm-hmm. years and played bass mm-hmm. in bands, and there's so so many bass players are frustrated guitar players. Mm-hmm. At least that that I've found, especially yeah. in a town like Los Angeles. I am too. Yeah. 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 I started playing guitar, you know, probably in sixth grade, and I still play a little bit. Yeah. I, I tell you what, the man. I encourage people if you want to work mm-hmm. in the music business, play the bass. Yeah. Play bass. <laughs> play pedal steel. Uh huh. Play Hammond organ. Right. Play these instruments that not that many people play or right. play very well, and mm-hmm. you will always work. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody plays guitar. Right. Everybody sings, mm-hmm. and almost everybody plays piano. Right. So I mean, to to get anywhere with those instruments you have to be either really good mm-hmm. or really lucky or some yeah. combination of the two yeah right yeah. but i i guess what i'm saying is that when when i play bass i really try to approach it from an entirely different perspective mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's it's played the same way with the frets and the strings right but you're you're serving a different purpose mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. you check your ego mm-hmm. and serve the music yeah you know how yep. i mean how do you how do you approach your instrument? Because you play both upright and electric. I do, yeah, and I tend to, my, you know, my career has always kind of split things fifty-fifty, which is nice. Um, I, you know, I think I think I started to get somewhere as a player when um, I keyed in on uh, people like uh, David Pilch, who plays bass with uh, with Katie Lang, and of course, um, you know, played with Bill Frizzell, and and uh, I don't, I can't remember who he's touring with right now, but um, people like him or people like Victor Krause. Um, you know, who plays with Lyle Lovett and has recorded with Bill Frizzell. Very supportive, but artistically supportive bass players. You know what I mean? Particularly on the upright, because, man, I studied Ray Brown and I studied Ron Carter and, you know, I studied Jocko and went in this jazz direction for a long time. But you have to be so good, you know what I mean, to make a career doing that. And and you also have to have a certain personality type, which I just I kind of identified in myself. That isn't what I was going to be. Yeah. You know. I mean, I understand how to play jazz. I teach students how to play, and I love it, and I listen to it all the time. But um, I just was not. That wasn't the path I was going to wind up on, as far as like being a, just a badass bass player. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In that regard, so I, I found these. You know, Charlie Hayden is another one for me who who maybe kind of rides the fine line in between the two because he's so artistic and so amazing, and he has this beautiful sound, but he's not virtuosic in the sense that. Scott LaFaro was or Eddie Gomez but he's virtuosic in the sense that he's so every statement he makes is beautiful and melodic and warm and deep you know what I mean right and so I try to take that 
and uh, and move it into um, the music that I was playing, you know. And whether I've been successful at that or, or not, I can't really judge that for myself. But I try to come at it from a supportive sense, knowing that you know my primary role and job is to play that one note that's going to make everything feel right. You know what I mean? It's going to make it feel warm and fluffy if it needs to, or it's going to make it feel aggressive and, and angry if it needs to. Um, or sometimes even just call into question, you know what I mean? If I, if I use a different note on underneath the harmony, like, Oh wow, what is that? You know, it's going to grab yeah. somebody's ear. And so, um, yeah, once I got clued into that and, and tried to figure out how to play things simply, but still improvise, you know what I mean? And, and, almost improvising at like a slower pace you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely. so i could stay true to, to who i am as a musician who learned about jazz and loves jazz um but understood that you know i i would be more successful if i could slow things down a bit you know what i mean and, and yeah, look yeah. at it from the bass player's perspective in that in that regard yeah well you have to you have to work too right you know it's yep. that's it's a job yeah for sure you know and yeah. you know look at happened look what happened to jocko mm-hmm. you know a lot of these yep. shredder types they burn hot and fast yep. right and you're not getting paid. Right. And therefore your kids aren't eating right. if you're not around right. to make the money to then feed them. Right. So, yep. you know, it's it's a it's a job like an, another, you know, in some ways it's a job unlike any other. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it's a job just like every other. Right. You have to make the same types of decisions yeah, you for gotta, the same reasons. You got to be good at what you do. Um, you know, I, I just did I just did this gig with Lyle Lovett and Russ Kunkel was playing drums on it. Um, you know, one of the greatest living drummers, you know, an L.A. guy. And I mean, he's recorded with everybody. You know, I, I have so much respect for him. And um, he said that that the way he looks at it, you know, as being a working musician, essentially a consummate sideman, um, is you bring what's expected and what's needed, you know? And so your job then is to find out what it is that's expected and what it is that's needed in any musical situation, you know, for situation A, it's going to be this and that for situation B, it's going to be this and that. And you have to respect that first and foremost, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and I think that's the, that seems to be a secret to, to success as far as working, you know what I mean? Just being a good supportive musician in that regard. Yeah, and being, you know, again, being a bass player, being, mm-hmm. you know, a backline instrument to an extent mm-hmm. is, is a team player yeah. situation. Absolutely. Not, yeah. Again, unless you're Stinger Jocko, you're not getting a ton of glory. Right. Um, but it's a different type of glory. Mm-hmm. And I, when I play bass, I mean, I, I get off on mm-hmm. that, like supporting and being mm-hmm. like, you know, when is it time, you know, be judicious with the use of those low low E's. Yeah, absolutely. When is it yeah. time to drop that on them? Right. You know, save it up. Right. You, know, you don't want to just give it to them all the time. Right. Then it's kind of kind of boring. Yeah, and you got to um, think of things in the in the long term. You know what I mean? Right. And, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I I really really love. it. I wish you know I've hacked it upright. Uh huh. But I've never I've never I've had access to one. Right. You know you can pick up a. You know, I still have the bass I bought at a pond or no, there's a used music store in, in Decatur, Illinois, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we went to college for mm-hmm. a time. Uh, it was marked at. I still have the tag on the back of the headstock. It mm. was marked for 95, and I think I talked him down a little bit. I got a bag, and it's a junky mm-hmm. old J-Bass knockoff. Mm-hmm. You played it on a tune. Oh, I did. on Because uh, uh, you played fretless a lot. Oh, yeah, you're this right. This is the only That's fretless had fretted bass point. we had around. I remember was, that, yeah. uh, this Austin yeah. black with a tortoiseshell pickguard uh-huh. uh, J-Bass knockoff, yep. and you played it on a track. Uh, called uh, Happy Endings. Oh yeah, right. Uh huh. Happy Endings. Uh, the Arcs, our band back then was called Rain Merchants. Right. And uh, it was it was really cool because it was interesting. First of all, to see you play a fretted bass. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we'll, maybe we should play this song. Okay. Let's let's yeah, toss sure. this in here yeah. because it's you know it's it's we, you and I both played on it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I it's so funny looking back at this. I was just talking to somebody. I had just got my matchless amplifier, it's mm-hmm. like a Turbo Vox, back mm-hmm. then, and. It was like way too much for what mm. that band should have been. <laughs> like looking back at it now, I was totally 
ridiculous uh-huh. playing at that volume. Uh-huh. But I, I still love that tone. But I should have been playing something much quieter. Uh-huh. Anyway, so this is Greg Garrison, uh, who's gone a lot farther than I have in the music business, at least so far, playing uh, my Austin bass on the Rain Merchants track, Happy Endings, from their record, their soul record, uh-huh. our soul record. Soul cassette, actually. Soul cassette, yeah. that's true. It was a cassette. Uh-huh. Uh, this is uh, uh, Happy Endings uh, from Nothing But Sky. Nice. <laughs>
And that was something you will probably never hear anywhere else yeah, right. in the universe. Uh, that is a band called Rain Merchants. Uh, me, Greg Garrison, Tony Piscotti, dear mm-hmm. friend of mine, uh, still active in the music business in mm-hmm. Chicago. Chris Smith, mm-hmm. who I don't know if he's still playing or not. Uh, sure. He's yeah. in Decatur. Mm-hmm. Uh, still married to the woman. No he kidding. Married back then. No kidding. Good for uh, him, man. Yeah, good for nice. him. Good and choice. Heather Burris, yep. uh, who... Uh, ran off to Los Angeles mm-hmm. to be an actress and still does as far yep. as I know. So a <laughs> little blast from the past there yeah, from man. the Millican days. Nice. Um, but let's let's go back up to what, you know, now that we've I'm all tangled up here. For uh-huh. those of you who can't see what we're doing, which I guess is everyone, we are in the back of a tour bus doing this interview. Yep. Uh, set left over Sam's tour bus. So thank Amongst you. Amongst the uh, the piles of guitars yeah, and bags piles and of uh, rock and roll accoutrements. Strings, here. strings on the floor and yep. It's all the stuff you might imagine would be in the back lounge yep. of anybody's tour bus. Yep. Um, but you've, you know, other than your work with mm-hmm. Leftover Salmon, mm-hmm. with Punch Brothers, mm-hmm. and some of the other people, I mean, your credit list is amazing. Bill mm-hmm. Frizzell, John Schofield, Jerry Douglas, mm-hmm. that guy. I mean, I don't, I've only seen a few musicians who literally left me speechless. Yeah, he's And Jerry Douglas yeah. has left me speechless on more than yep. one occasion. Sam Bush, mm-hmm. Del McCurry, uh, you know, the list just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And you've got your own record. I do, yep. Which came out just a couple years ago, 2011. Mm-hmm. It is called Low Lonesome. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about why, with all the other credits and all the other things you do, mm-hmm. why make your own record? Um, I think th- for me, it came about because uh, um, I felt like I needed to kind of crystallize who I am or who I was as a musician. Um, I guess maybe a little bit beyond what we were just talking about as a supportive bass player. You know, I, I was playing... A lot of that came from from working in Punch Brothers and realizing, like, holy shit, here I am with this amazing group of musicians, you know what I mean? And, and being kind of considered, um, at least by the people in the group. It wasn't always... I don't think I was always considered, uh, you know, in that regard by some of the other people around the scene, but um, by the people in the group to be at that level, you know what I mean? And so I felt like I needed to, to crystallize um, in my own mind and my own vision of what I thought music should be, you know what I mean, because of that. Because working with somebody like Chris, who, who is so easy for him to distill and crystallize exactly what he wants out of the music, I had never done that before, you know. Um, and so I just uh, felt the need to do that and started writing and, uh, and arranging. And for me, I've always been interested in the, the intersection of folk music and jazz, you know, and and um, and so it was just an opportunity for me to really dig into that and try to find something in there that that uh, um, represented me. Yeah, yeah. And so I the the CD I finished it um, and recorded it. I recorded it live just because you know at that point I was a broke ass musician and that's how I could afford to do it. And so I did a couple gigs and and got the musicians I wanted to have on the record play two nights in a row, one in Denver, one in Boulder, and and had a friend of mine uh, record. You know, he just multi tracked everything and we edited and did a tiny bit of overdubbing. You know, over overdubbing, I guess, and some seasoning. You know what I mean to make things sound good. Um, and then I actually used it as uh, part of my the credit for my doctorate when I was working. Oh, on very that. nice. So, because my my over you know my big arching theme of my dissertation, which in my program at least at the University of Colorado consisted of a document, you know, like a, a dissertation or thesis, um, and then a series of recitals, a couple of recitals that I had to do, a lecture recital, um, and then the CD I was able to produce as one of my recitals oh. you know, as part of that dissertation document. That's very very savvy of you. Yeah. To do it that way. Well, I mean, man, you know, the the pro- Program, you know, Doctor of Musical Arts is, is about half research and half performance, you know, and contribution to your field as a creative um, musician. And because my all of my research and uh, my kind of recital presentations were um, involved in this intersection of, of folk and jazz, 
it just fit right into that, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, it's so interesting to me, you know, uh, Nora Jones took the intersection between folk and jazz mm-hmm. to the bank. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody expected that, least of which her. Right. Because she did that record on Blue Note. But yeah, even right. that, she was like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not really a jazz musician per right. se. She's got the smoky voice. Yeah. But she's kind of a folk singer. Yeah. She's kind of sure. a folk singer. Uh, and she's I mean, that, really great at it. But and yeah. she's really great at it. And she's got great players in her mm-hmm. band. And that's, and to, to your end, you know, with your record, mm-hmm. you know, doing it live like that, when mm-hmm. you're playing with music, of the caliber that you are, mm-hmm. you can get away with that. Right. You know, it's a lot easier to just get top-notch players Absolutely. and say, one, two, three, go, yeah, than right. it is to take a bunch of kids, mm-hmm. make a rock band. I mean, that's a much more mechanical right. that's true. experience yeah. to do yeah. that, you know. And that's one thing, I mean, I've, watching your career, mm-hmm. you know, kind of from afar, um, there's, there's similarities between bluegrass and jazz. Mm-hmm. They're both very improvisatory mm-hmm. styles of music. With Virtuosic like, as well. Yeah, yeah. blazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, virtuosity and improvisation and blazing solos and right. and exploring mm-hmm. musical territory. They mm-hmm. b- both got their framework. Right. You know, But I think it's interesting. Of all the guys I know, you've done the best mm-hmm. at kind of straddling that line between those two worlds, right. incorporating both those worlds in sure. the things that you do. Sure. So I want to give people a, a taste of this. This is from your record. Uh, this is a traditional arra- or an arrangement of a traditional tune. Uh, it's called Border Widow's Lament. Tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about why you included this. Um, I just thought it was a beautiful tune. And, and the, first, uh, the first, it's kind of split into two different parts so the first part uh the border widow's lament is something i learned from uh um, i first heard on a norman blake record uh, norman blake who's an amazing old time and, mm-hmm. and uh um you know bluegrass guitar player but who also worked with johnny cash and bob dylan and you know yeah, kind of in the rock world and yeah he's still around i mean he's still playing yeah he and his wife nancy blake i saw them a couple years ago well a few years ago i guess in denver um but i learned this tune off of one of his records one from the i had it on vinyl i still do have it on vinyl called live at mccabe's um, I think it was from like 76 maybe or 75. Yeah, they still do concerts at McCabe's. Do they? They wow. do. Crazy. So do. yeah, it was just a beautiful tune. It's just cello and, and fiddle on this record. And it, it always stuck in my mind. And it's one that I, I uh, you know, I had transcribed a long time ago, but had never really, I'd played it in like piano trios and stuff and it never quite worked. And, and uh, so I arranged it for, for horns and really tried to um, transcribe, you know, the feeling, I guess, of like the droney kind of fiddle and all that stuff, which is pretty, which is harder than it seems you know what i mean i don't know if i i don't know if i quite nailed that i might do some things differently but then in researching the background of that tune the border widow's lament um and kind of digging into um child ballads which is this classification of scottish you know an english uh, folk song i found some other tunes that were related to it and uh um the one that it makes up the second half of this track is called O Onokio, which is a kind of another tale of the same story, I guess. And it's a really beautiful waltz that had an amazing melody. I just found the melody and then I just, you know, kind of reharmonized it from there to, to suit the mood, I guess. So All right. Well mm-hmm. let's hear what let's hear what you came up with, man. Yep. Uh, this is uh, Joe Armstrong. This is Independence Day <laughs> coming to you from the back of the leftover salmon tour bus in West Hollywood, Los Angeles, California, just outside the House of Blues. Uh, exactly. They're about to play a show here. Yep. Uh, this will air later, actually. But right. uh, so I'm, I'm assuming the show will have gone fantastically. Oh yeah, it went amazing. They always well. do. Yep. Uh, and so this is uh, Greg's track, "Border Widow's Lament" on Independence Day.
You are listening to Independence Day. Lucky you. My name is Joe Armstrong. I bring you great musicians, hopefully from anywhere I can find them. But uh, I've reached to Colorado today, or Greg came to me, Greg Garrison yep. from Leftover Salmon. Uh, you can learn about uh, Independence Day by dropping by our website, indepday.com. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. Or stop by our, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash indepday. And, and always follow us on the Twitters at in-depth day. Uh, and Greg, you've got websites as well, greggarrisonbase.com. Yep. Best place to find that. So if you want to buy a copy of what we just heard, you can drop by your website? Yeah, you can drop by my website if I ever get around to, to making physical copies again. I don't okay. know if I will. I'm, I'm mostly sold out of those. But How many did you make? Uh, I made 300. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like a thousand has been what everybody makes. Yeah, but I, I, that, I didn't want boxes sitting in my closet. That man, has you know? more to do with the the, the replicators than right. what we need as musicians. Absolutely. Most musicians, especially now, like mm-hmm. you gave me a download card earlier. Right. That's what that's nobody wants a yeah. physical copy. Anymore. I got two hundred of those for like twenty bucks. They had a sale. <laughs> you know what I mean? They had a yeah. sale at CD Baby or something like yeah. that. So you can I think CD Baby still has some physical copies yeah. of my CD. iTunes, Amazon.com. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's even on Spotify, which is pretty cool. Oh so yeah, that, that is cool. That I have a, there's it's a, probably on RDO. There's a, there's a Joe Armstrong Pandora channel. Nice. The stuff I had to go through to get that man. Yeah, it was really. It was ridiculous. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I, I get a little check every now and again yeah, right. from all that stuff, like mm-hmm. most of us musicians do. But yep, tiny, but it's tiny nice, little check. It's a nice little <laughs> nice bonus. When it, yeah. Nice when it shows like, up. Oh, I can pay for the dinner I went to last night. Nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or maybe you go to Taco <laughs> Bell. So you know, you're a working musician. Yep. A grown up mm-hmm. professional musician you yeah, you, depending who you ask but you, you teach you tour you know you, you do records on your own uh-huh. you get calls to play with people like chris steely mm-hmm. and frizzell and these other cats you know but and i want to talk a little bit about your teaching now mm-hmm. or like your your status as a musician like well your relationship to music right um as a professional musician now who spends a lot of time on the road mm-hmm. like what was your practice regimen mm-hmm. when you were getting good mm-hmm. when you were younger as a kid mm-hmm. and how does that contrast with your, what your practice regimen is now. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think the time when I was the most intensely focused on, on practicing was in college, obviously, um, when I had the time to do it. And, uh, we I, seemed so busy. Yeah, I and know. And now I look at it, it's like, oh, man. There's nothing to do. Yeah, Nothing right. to do. No, and you know what? I Man, I practiced all the time, and I listened all the time. And, and uh, you know, I was never, um, it's just my personality. I'm not like a regimented, um, you know, consistency is something I've always had a hard time with. I'm not the kind of guy who gets up and does this, has the same routine every day. But I always played and practiced. And, and uh, I think at my best, you know, I was always good for maybe three to four hours a day or something. Um, with gigs, I mean, there were days when I'd play for 12, 15 hours a day with practice and class and rehearsals, you know, like any college musician does, you, you're always playing. Yeah. Um, when I went to get my master's in Greeley and I didn't really know anybody, I didn't have a social scene to worry about, which was, an, I think maybe that was part of the reason I went to Colorado too, just to have some peace and quiet and, and really get down to business. I was, yeah, probably four to five hours a day I was practicing. Okay. Um, and that was the closest I ever came to like some kind of a normal routine. Um, and then now I, I, I practice for, you know, I, I, have had to settle on with kids and three kids, you know, and, and, uh, full-time teaching gig when I'm home and other things that I, that I need to do. Um, I am essentially kind of practicing for, for projects or, or music that I have, Yeah. you know, the, the Lyle Lovett stuff I just did, I had to u- learn a huge book of music, you know, cause I didn't know what we were going to play. I kind of had an idea. They sent me a couple set lists, but I had to go through and um, do a lot of my own research. And so for that, I, you know, I started a m- probably six weeks ahead of time, transcribing, making myself charts. And uh, then I think 
about the like three weeks you know i listened practicing to me isn't always just time on the instrument it's listening right reading the chart along you know if i'm sitting on a plane i i have the chart and and uh you know i read along and try to memorize the chart visually and mentally you know so i'm prepared when i pick up the bass um even if i haven't necessarily ever played the tune it's in there you know what i mean right and uh so then i did for that gig in particular i think i spent i i practiced every night for about three weeks straight um, you know, after I'd put my kids to bed or something, I'd, I'd play for about an hour and a half, two hours and, and, uh, just kept cycling, you know, the 50 or so tunes I figured that, that we would play. How many dates did you do with Lyle? There was three shows. That was it. Three shows. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, that's, that's work ethics. Yeah. And see, this is something, you know, all you kids at home, you know, pay, pay attention. This mm-hmm. is, this is what you do, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a working musician, you know, mm-hmm. this is the gig with Lyle. It's a mm-hmm. great thing to have on your resume. It was huge, man. And you know, I mean, he, he just, I felt like I had to pay him when you get hired, when you get a call for that and you know, the, the quality of the players that you're going to be playing with and somebody who, who's Lyle love it. You know, I mean, his, you can't argue with his career and the fact that he's an yeah. amazing songwriter and musician. Um, yeah, you know, you got to pay him the respect to, yeah. to really know your going into that and it's certainly you know it's it's a credit to you mm-hmm. that you would get that call because you know from what i know about love it he doesn't play with slouch musicians no definitely not you know, to, to get that call is a testament to your right. you know, your career your dedication to your craft absolutely uh yeah. your resume mm-hmm. your personality your mm-hmm. everything so kudos to you man thanks man yeah I, I felt extremely lucky and fortunate to to get to do that yeah was, and yeah, you know victor krauss's shoes are a big Big yeah, shoes to and fill. the other guy that he uses is Leland Sklar, so oh. that's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh-huh. a, that's a big name in the biz. And we're the funny thing is, you know, we're throwing around names that like people that I know. Yeah, oh yeah, of course I know uh-huh. who you know Lee, Lee Sklar is, but you know, it's it's so interesting outside of our circle, mm-hmm. the music circle. I wonder if anybody has any idea who these no, people. They know him. You know what? Mo- most people know Lee Sklar from his picture. They yeah. see a picture and they're like, oh yeah, I saw that dude on a James Taylor concert or yeah. Genesis or whatever it is. You know what I mean? And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, Rick Rubin is that way too. Uh-huh. I think I saw Rick Rubin in Beverly Hills a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So I know he's into old cars, like fancy old cars, and there was a guy parked in front of someone's house in Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. looked like Rick Rubin, you know, big old beard and little kind of Buddha mm-hmm. beer belly kind of thing, and like an old fancy hot rod. And I was uh-huh. like, I bet you anything that's Rick Rubin. It's all I could do not to throw my CD out the window at him. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rubin, I will do anything. Yeah, right. Please. Ten seconds. Anything. You should have just hit his car. Yeah, that's true. You know, then he'd have to he'd have to like hang out for a while. Yeah, well that that takes what's that movie with uh, River Phoenix? Which one? Uh, the Nashville one, where huh. he he's a songwriter. He's trying to get some country star's attention. So his he or his buddy sneaks into their property and puts the tape in the girl's car- tape deck. Oh, really? Like, surreptitiously, like uh-huh. secretly, so nobody knew it was there. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's fiction, I guess. Maybe uh-huh. not that unusual for Nashville. Right. So. I guess, you know, that's pretty much what we've got to talk about mm-hmm. here. I mean, you've got a show to play, so we, we should probably wrap it up pretty yeah, soon. Man. But I want to give people just another listen to one more thing that you've done. You, this is a live track here. It's a track called Elliot. Yep. Uh, tell me about this track. Uh, not actually live. It was recorded in the studio. It just hasn't been mixed well, yet. Live in yeah. the studio. Yeah, exactly. Live to that extent. Okay. Yep. And so this one is a, is a composition that I wrote, um, kind of a, a dedication to Elliot Smith. Um, you know, great songwriter. Yeah. Dead songwriter, unfortunately. You know, lived died a tragic death that some people think was a suicide some people think was a murder yeah well, nobody really knows man i live in los angeles that's big uh that's still big that's, that's conversation in yeah, right. around here right and so there's there was just this kind of turn of phrase that i heard in a lot of elliot smith tunes it's like this melody that pops up in so many of his tunes yeah. you know and so i i just kind of took that uh, that little fragment of elliot smith and wrote a piece around it very and, nice uh, yeah so this tune um scott amandola was in town who's a great drummer um he who has some Denver connections. He lives in 
Berkeley, but he's he's recorded with and toured with uh, um, with uh, Madeline Perot and also Charlie Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's played in duo with him for years. He's a great, great drummer and, and just a great person. So anyway, he was in town in Denver and and uh, we did a gig the night before and then snuck into the studio for a few hours the next day. And uh, so this is one of the things we recorded there. Very nice. All right, mm-hmm. this is Greg Garrison. This will be our last track from him. We'll come back and find out what he's doing in the future here. So this is Greg Garrison on Independence Day with the track Elliot.
so very happy to have you on Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. Tonight, I am happy to be with Greg Garrison, old yeah. friend of mine, bass player for Leftover Salmon. Punch Brothers has played with more people than I can list off. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, man, I, I mean, je- jealous is not the right word, but I'm and envious. These, these words have negative connotations, right. but I mean, I'm, I'm proud to know you mm-hmm. and, and the work that you've done. Likewise, it's, it's, man. It's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, you can learn about Greg Garrison at greggarrisonbass.com. Of course, Leftover Salmon at leftoversalmon.com. They mm-hmm. both have Twitter pages. You're, I, I like your Twitter handle. You're missing an S. I know. Right? It wouldn't for some reason when I signed up, it wouldn't let me put that last S on. It's it's Greg at Greg Garrison Bass yeah. with one S. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that. I don't know why that amuses me so much. It's, it's just funny it. to me too. I, it, I don't know why it wouldn't let me put that. Technology, last S, man. man. Tell me, tell me this. You uh-huh. spend a lot of time on the road. You've yep. been doing music, cre- you know, professionally, creatively for a long time. Yep. How has technology changed? In or like music, how has the technology changed while you while you've been at this? It's uh, I mean obviously the social networking thing is is ridiculously huge and it, it made it it's a part of everything we do now, and it's honestly made it possible for me to promote my own shows. I, I do a concert series in Denver oh, called, yeah, that I call yeah. Improvised Roots. Definitely, that was in mm-hmm. my notes. Talk to me about this series. So it's it's again an extension of that um, concept of combining folk and and jazz. You know that I that I started with my with my doctorate and uh, I. In the same sense that I felt like I needed to make a per- personal statement as a composer, as an arranger, and a musician, I wanted to then kind of put my money where my mouth was as a, as far as presenting these concerts, um, you know, and showing people that how this works in in action. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I do them at a uh, kind of whenever I can pull them together. You know, um, this will I'm I'm actually getting ready to do my fourth one in a couple weeks here, I guess. In, yeah. In uh, March, but. Um, yeah, there's a club in Denver that I do it with called Dazzle, um, nice little jazz club, and, and generally they'll give me two nights to to put something together, and, and I try to pull you know somebody reasonably well known from the jazz world and somebody reasonably well known from the bluegrass world, and put them together with uh, with myself and some other Denver musicians to kind of round out round out the band. And so the first one I did was with Bill Frizzell on guitar and uh, Brian Sutton on guitar. I had worked with Brian a little bit in Chris Thiele's, uh world. Brian played uh, with us on the road for about a year um, before we officially became the Punch Brothers. At that point, it was the How to Grow a Band is what we were called. Um, but I had never worked with Bill. But the trumpet player on the gig, who's kind of one of my mentors, Ron Miles from Denver, um, had has been playing with Bill for years. So anyway, it was just like a process of connecting the dots and getting everybody in the same place at the same time. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, we when we've done this in the past and, and when I do it in the future, I just get these people together, you know, fly them in for the weekend and, and we get to um, generally get one rehearsal the night before. You know, everybody brings some material in and we just see what happens. So it's very loose, very casual, very fun. You know, I like to yeah, make it, yeah. no, I, make to, I don't want to make it like a pressure situation. I want everybody to have a good time and, um, you know, really kind of get to know each other on a musical level. Level. Um, yeah, so that's been awesome. That's very cool, man. You can mm-hmm. add musical emissary. I guess to yeah. your resume now. <laughs> that's very, very cool. Well, Greg, man, it's been absolutely wonderful yeah. to catch up with you, and thank you so much for taking time. I know what it's like when you're on the road. Your oh, time absolutely. is so limited. It's a hurry up and wait kind of deal. So right. thank you for like carving out time during your yeah, day yep. to talk to us uh, and share your story. Yeah, um, and please keep in touch. I will for sure. Uh, real quick, what's your? You've got your on tour. Uh, through the about you know through early March with yep. leftover salmon, you've got some dates. The improvised roots thing yep. back at back at home in yep. uh, your home state, your adopted home state of yep. uh, Colorado. Absolutely. Uh, you've got some. You got some. Uh, looks like you've got festivals coming up in March. 
Yeah. I'm doing some stuff with uh, Dave Douglas, who's an amazing trumpet player, composer from New York. Um, you know, I, I equate him to the Wynton Marsalis of the downtown oh, jazz nice. scene, you know, and so I'm doing some dates with him in April, which is going to be awesome. Um, I'll be back teaching at University of Colorado, Denver, um, where I'm a professor, teach music theory and yeah. all that kind of wackadoo. Um, as soon as the tour is over, and also Metro State, which is another Very school nice. I teach at in, in Denver. And yeah. uh, one and one final question, I, I want to sneak in here, mm-hmm. uh, Key, if you would keep this answer somewhat short. What what do you learn? You teach bass. I do. What yep. do you learn from your students? Um, because you're teaching them, but yeah. I know from being a teacher, you learn. You from learn them a too. lot. I mean, uh, honestly, what what I learn from them is what they want to learn. You know what I mean? Like how do you how to teach how to teach each student on an individual level? Because uh, you know I've never been able to go in with if I go in with an agenda, I'm screwed. You know what I mean? If I say I want you to learn this, it's never going to work. So I I try to what I've learned is is how to. Um, and I learned this in my classroom teaching as well, how to meet them where they need to be met as a musician mm, that's cool. and help them, you know what I mean, get to the next to the next level. You I sound guess. like a good teacher, man, because I had a lot of teachers who did the opposite <laughs> thing, what you just described. Well, so did I. You will were, learn this, you yeah, little right, bastard. Right. And I guess <laughs> something can be said for discipline and all. I think so, you know, but but in the back of my mind, I always know what it is I'm trying to get them to. Because, man, I came up that way too, you know. I learned all the exercises I need to learn, and, and uh, you know, I, I learned bass in a very traditional classical fashion. But... Um, and music theory as well. I mean, I went to University of Illinois, which is like a classical, you know, classically oriented program. That's where I learned all of my theory and all that shit. So, um, in teaching, I know what I want to. I know where I want to get them to in that regard. You know, as far as like legitimate musical um, education. But I know that there's different ways to get there than just like grabbing them by the throat and saying, Yeah, yeah. You know, you need to learn this. So. Uh, it's very, it's very, it's Taoist. Yeah. You work with it instead Absolutely. of against it. Yeah. That's how you do it, man. Yep. So, Greg, once again, I can't thank you enough for carving out time during your day. It's been great to talk yeah, to man, you. Yeah, man, you too. And I hope you have a wonderful show. All right. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, and also your date's coming up yep. and keep in touch, like I said. So, yeah. thanks very much to Greg Garrison, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton, and to Valentino Rivera from Lancer Radio. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society for Independence Day. As always, I am Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another.